Welcome to episode 34 of Redboard Rewind. My name is Spencer Luganbule. Today my special guest is the Daily Gallup writer, Ryan McCarthy. We go over some races from last Saturday's card at Santa Anita, and some angles we talk about are how older horses against three-year-olds can help you find a nice price underneath, and how learning why a horse is being placed in a certain race can lead to a winner. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old Now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, Ryan McCarthy. Ryan, how are you doing today? Doing awesome, Spencer. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. So tell me kind of what your beginning into the racing was. Well, to tell you the truth, it started with dog racing in, in New England. Uh, as, as a teen, I liked to gamble a lot with friends, and we'd go to Seabrook Downs in New Hampshire after a day at the beach, or we'd drive down to the Lincoln Park Casino and we'd watch dog races from there. And I actually remember sitting outside the bar because we were too young to drink at that time. And I saw simulcast racing, I think for like the first time ever outside of, you know, the big events that, that take place and started to think like, wow, 30 minutes in between races. I'm never getting into that. So <laughs> 10 to 15 minutes was, was perfect for me at that time, but it's amazing how you get older and mature and 30 minutes at times is, is not long enough for me in horse racing now. Um, but started to dabble from there and quickly began to appreciate the sport. Um, and I've always just kind of had an analytical mind and, and really liked the analytical challenge. Always been into statistics. And as a very young kid, I can recall keeping track of baseball statistics for fantasy baseball amongst a group of like seven or eight friends before they had computer programs or before it was free to go ahead and, and do that. So a buddy of mine and I would buy the weekly edition of Baseball America and we'd spend our Sundays combing through box scores and tallying up standings and you know there's so many statistics in horse racing that it's just an interest and a challenge and at the end of the day it's a puzzle and when people ask me why I love horse racing I often say it's the greatest puzzle in the world. You often hear people complaining at the racetrack when they miss a horse they know they should have had. For me it's always I've, I've not been an avid chess player but I've started to kind of teach myself chess over the last couple of years and there's so many parallels of what it is to play horse racing and play chess, you know, having to remember some moves or just remembering the stats in general. Stuff like Formulator is such a key now compared to guys when they were doing it in the 80s and 90s having to do it on, you know, a notebook. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Like it, reading some of these books, you know, Betting with an Edge comes up as one of them and, and hearing some of the handicap processes that you know, used to be in place, you know, the, the small little memo pads and things of that nature. You know, we're lucky that formulator that's that's certainly my go-to and it's the one-stop shop to kind of keep all your notes and take global information that everybody has and make it unique to what you're seeing so yeah absolutely i feel you there let's talk a little bit about your process and what you uh go through from the start of the day to the end of the day like where do you start do you start by combing through an entire card or do you kind of go race by race well i'm very analytical in nature and so for me it's all about the data and, you know, last I listened to the last podcast from last week with Acacia, and I'm kind of opposite from where she is. She's very visual and spotting her horses, and I'd love to get that talent at some point. But for me, it's, you know, give me all the data you got and, and let me interpret it from there. Uh, so for me, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Formulator. Like I said, it's, I think it's the best tool out there to, that allows for the customization of common data. Um, I love that you can you can load other data into it. So I'm a, I'm a race flow uh, subscriber. So I load that in there so that I can see track bias as well as racing flow bias um, in one spot. Um, other than that, I, I also typically have a thoroughgraph or a workout reports by my side. Um, and oftentimes when I'm spotting something when, re when reviewing those, I'll, I'll load them into Formulator so uh, I have those notes for the future. What do you think, like, out of the four fundamentals, class, form, speed figures, and pace, like, which one do you think is your kind of go-to? Well, I'd probably start with pace. Um, anytime I'm, I'm starting to handicap a particular race, 
that's certainly a great spot uh, for me to start. So this is where I'll, I'll, I'll really look into where do I upgrade, where do I down, downgrade, whether it's pace, stalkers, or closers. And then from there, I'm really just I'm, I'm digging for evidence on where a horse can improve or regress. So this can be from something I noted in, in trip notes or something I see in formulator or their form cycle in sheets or, or even from recent works. Uh, I'm looking for what is going to make this horse jump or what is going to make this horse regress. And, and that's some of the data that I, I often scrutinize. When you were first starting off, did you have anybody to kind of help you along the way, or was it more of like you just learned as you went? Yeah, good question. So I was really fortunate in, in my journey to, to land in Lexington, Kentucky. And two years out of college, I'd say, is, is when I landed my job there in the hotel business. And I'd spend my off days at the track in Keeneland because at that point, that's that's really when my fire was, was burning bright for this horse racing industry. And being in the horse capital of the world, no better spot for that. So I, I worked with everybody that, that works in Lexington has some type of interest in horse racing, it seemed. And, and those folks that I worked with there at that hotel, there was a, a few that were very passionate about it. Um, so they introduced me to some good folks there at the track. I really got to, you know, learn some key angles, meet some key people. And, you know, from there, my journey continued uh, from Lexington down to Washington, D.C., spent some time at Colonial Downs. And then from D.C., a few years back, six years now, I uh, moved to Southern California, where I've been in Drive Range to Santa Anita, Losal, Del Mar. And like most people, you know, I have good connections on, on Twitter and follow a lot of sharp people. And, you know, for me, it's you know, never think you're you're the smartest guy in the room. You always got to want to be hungry to learn to learn more. So I look for people that just have that valuable insight. I want to get to know how their mind works. Uh, just this past weekend, just in a short conversation with, with Tony Zhou um, on Twitter, as I said, I'm not a a big contest player right now. I'd, I'd like to get into that even more and I'm kind of honing my craft there. And, you know, Tony's one of the best out there. And I said, I'd, I'd love to have some bourbons with you one time and really pick your brain over, you know, what are some of the best angles to look at? You know, what is some of the best game theory to look at? And just meeting people like that, that can really educate you and being a sponge in this game is really some of the best advice that I can give to anybody out there uh, because there's so much to learn in, in this wonderful game. It's the only way to go. Tony is for sure one of the best. Also, people looking to get into tournaments, if you want to check out PTF's book, The Winning Contest Player, that's also, I'm sure, free, still available out there. Do you remember specifically a certain horse race where you just, like, you absolutely crushed it? Now, maybe not so much from a monetary or a money value, but just you handicapped it perfectly. You knew the exact pace, and everything that you thought would happen did happen. Yeah, I'm going to go back and actually, it's and say two years ago, Breeders' Cup Friday, um, the early pick five I was really focused in on. And in that sequence, the early pick five ended with the race that Bulletin had won. And everything I had looked at, even though these were young horses at this time, these, this was the juvenile race, I saw Bulletin go into the front, and I didn't see any horses that were going to be able to keep up. And I singled that in my pick five. I, I got lucky in the second or third leg of that sequence with, with a bomb. And you know, that pick five sequence ended up paying 24, 25 grand. Um, so that was one that you know, took a really strong opinion with Bulletin, ended up playing it as that single one and ended up paying off. You know, that's one that certainly comes to mind. Also, Ryan, tell me what some of your uh, key angles are now that we're back handicapping Santa Anita. Yeah, key angles for Santa Anita. You know, this is a, a track and a circuit that, that I follow very closely. So I, I feel like I have a, a really good grasp on if horses are well meant, you know, what trainers are maybe thinking with a particular horse. So, so for me, in reviewing these workout reports and, and understanding – now they're working certain patterns, you know, five furlongs, five furlongs to six. You know, what does that mean for a certain trainer versus ones that will go directly to the blowout? Um, so I'll take a lot of notes on that. The other big angle, too, that I like to look at, especially this time in the year, being early, both at Santa Anita and uh, when Oakland is running, is the three-year-old and older races. I think there's a lot of value to be had early on in this year where you have the young three-year-old running against older um, where oftentimes you see a favorite that, you know, for, for example, yesterday at Santa Anita, 
you had Lofty running at an eight to five price in, in the opener uh-huh. um, as a three year old. And he had a good older horse that had good experience and fit the pace well. Uh, with Corel coming from off of it. Um, so that was a strong angle for me yesterday, and I'll often often use that, and I'll often upgrade some of those older horses younger, running against younger three-year-olds. As the year goes on, obviously that angle um, is not as strong, um, but still always something to look at for me. And other than that, I think the Santa Anita track has, has really changed over the years. It, it used to be that speedball course where you know it was all about finding that front-end speed on dirt. And now the track has really played fair. It's actually looked fantastic here to, to open back up over the past couple of days. So using those race flow notes to really understand how a particular track is playing um, is another key thing. I was talking with a mutual friend, Sean Alvarez, yesterday on a Zoom call, and he I was asking him stuff because he might know you a little bit better than I do, and he said to ask you about your race replay watching and how uh, Sir Winston of the Belmont from last year, that was all based off of just a, tr- a trip note or something that you had found in the Peter Pan, I'm guessing? Um, he may be thinking of someone else there. I was not on Sir Winston. I was actually dead set against Sir Winston in, in that race. But, um, yeah, I am big on trip notes. Um, I'm certainly far from where Benny South Street of the world is. <laughs> he's, he's the cream of the crop there. But, you know, that's that's what I aspire to, to be from a trip note standpoint. So, you know, I, I look at guys like that. And you say, you know, how do you, how do you get there? And I love Benny's mentality every time he's on the show. And this is, his mindset is don't let someone outwork you. And, you know, I kind of have that same mindset, you know, whether it's in my main profession or here in horses, it's, you know, take that same mentality and make sure you put in the work and, and that work's going to pay off. This game, often people think it's just all about luck, but it's, it's not, it takes luck and it takes a lot of hard work. And these trip notes are, are a big part of it. So watching races and finding specific things that you're kind of, that you're looking for, not the obvious stuff that's going to show up in the form, but it, it may be a horse when you're looking on the head-on, you may get sideways a little bit um, on the backstretch, uh, or may end up hitting a little bit of traffic that you don't see on the pan. Uh, so one of my processes now is you know, I often play Wednesday through Sunday, and I, I keep Monday and Tuesday um, away from actually playing the races, and I use those two days to, to really catch up on replays and to start beefing up my, my formulator a little bit more. Um, and I really want to focus just on the Southern California circuit this year. It's going to allow me to be to be focused. I think this whole quarantine thing has, has thrown off my game a little bit, trying to sp- uh, spread my wings a little bit too much with Gulfstream and with Oakland and now with Santa Anita coming back. I'm certainly just going to dedicate myself to one. When you see someone, talk about someone like the great Penny South Street, who, if anyone wants to know, has a service out right now. The first 30 days are free. I will leave a description for it when I bring the uh, tweet out for this podcast to go sign up. It's going to be a great thing for people who are learning to become a trip handicapper. What was the first, like, kind of eureka moment when you were a trip handicapper and you're like, oh, I'm actually really starting to get a hang of this? It's pretty amazing. Like, I just challenge people who haven't done it to do it because uh-huh. read the form and come up with your opinion, and then go watch the replays and see how those opinions change. And to be honest with you, Spencer, it's probably hard for me to go back and pinpoint that one aha moment, but Uh they happen all the time when I'm handicapping. So if I start my process out by just looking at the data and looking at the sheets, I may have a pretty strong opinion in a race, and then I go back and I watch the replays if I don't have trip notes in there, and, and that opinion can completely change. Because, you know, the, the five or six words that DRF is going to use in that line is, is just not going to, to be able to illustrate how that horse ran throughout the race. And it just misses a lot of things. So you need to be able to trust your eyes and be able to see you know, where trouble may have occurred, you know, and, and really look at the jockey. And did, was the jockey really putting this horse into the race? You know, will he will another jock fit better? Will different tactics fit, fit better? These are all part. These are all questions that you want to ask yourself when you're looking at these replays, because it really starts to put these pieces of the puzzle together, and it makes it really interesting. From a jockey standpoint, do you ever like not have a system, but like I know for some people they think Flavian Pratt is very is really well does really well on the turf compared to the dirt. Some jockeys might be better on a speed horse than a closer. Do you kind of have those stuff pinned down now for Southern California for the most part? Yeah, I think so. I think I did an article for for the Daily Gallup last mm-hmm. year um, on the SoCal jockeys and you know what their specialties are. Um, and and I'd always say just be careful with some of those myths out there. I think a lot of people will say oh, only bet 
Pratt on, on turf, he can't run dirt. But then you go look at the, the data and it doesn't support that, right? So mm-hmm. we're always going to go back and, and back up those theories with data. But there are some uh, theories that are backed up. Um, you know, you look at Edwin Maldonado on horses that, that run strong out of the gate. I mean, he is one of the best gate riders out there. But would I want him on a closer? Absolutely not. Um, do I want Asa Espinoza on a turf horse? Um, at any point, probably not. I'm usually going to downgrade if I see Ace on, on the turf, uh, but on dirt, I'm fine playing him. Um, but some of the stars that are out there now, uh, the, the Prats of the world, and even the Rispolis, who's, who's really shot up, and he quickly adjusted to, to dirt racing, racing here last year on the SoCal circuit. I think they can ride anything. I, I think they, they do the work. Um, you know, they're, they're mentally prepared for these races, and that's part of it. You know, you want jockeys that are prepared uh, so understanding which ones are and which ones aren't you know, could be a good angle what do you say ryan we get started with these three races that you picked out from last saturday at santania we'll start with race number three it was a maiden special weight for phillies and mares three-year-olds and upward going five and a half on the turf what were your thoughts going into the race so this is a super bred race i mean you, you talk about some really nice horses coming into this and you know it was one of the reasons i wanted to pick this one out because you know, when i opened up uh, the card earlier on in the week and it was good race after good race for for this one but this one really stuck out and i I was really excited to see the number five himiko um half the bodemeister million dollar purchase the damn untouched talent had only raced as a two-year-old but had won easy on debut um won a graded stakes in her second start uh, finished the career with two seconds and a grade one and a grade two. So just really loaded on the damn side from a talent standpoint. And then Sire being Bodemeister. And this is a really interesting one. And then digging deeper into it, and you looked at the Grand Dame. She was a beast too. 13 races, five wins, three seconds, two thirds. Um, most of it on turf, four stakes wins. And American Pharaoh is producing best right now for turf sprints. I know it's early in the game, uh, but so far the highest percentage for his horses have, have been the turf sprint so far uh, with a 19% win clip. And the other interesting angle too was, uh, you know, Bodie Meister is, is by Empire Maker, which is AP Sire. So, you know, this is truly a, a superbred coming into the race. And, you know, whenever you're looking at these first-time starters for me, uh, I certainly go to the workout reports. And, you know, workout reports out there, you have people who are dead set against them and some that don't believe them at all and, and some that use them. What I would say with workout reports is you got to find one that you trust. And you can't just use it for the letters alone. And I, I see people make that mistake too often. They'll scroll through, they'll look for the B pluses and, and, and they'll make that their play on that alone. You got to really read through it and understand how is the horse working? Who is the horse working with? What jockey is up on the horse? Is that the same jockey that's going to be riding him in the afternoon? And all of these things are very important. And I, I really like the workouts um, that were coming out of this horse. You know, two really nice bullets in April, uh, where one of them was with, with Gamin. So uh, a beast in Baffert's barn, and to be paired up with this one, I think is a big sign of confidence uh, for what this horse is going to be able to do. Were you all at least nervous about Bob Baffert on the turf? You always send it here, you know, Baffert on the turf is usually a, a knockdown or a negative. So that's that's one of those um, those myths out there that you always want to back up with data, right? Um, you know, being a formulator guy, I, I certainly went in there and, and double-checked that statistic, and I believe Baffert is 17% um, on turf. Um, so, you know, that's not a terrible number. That's you know, not one that I'm, I'm going to shy away from for a horse that, that looks to be bred for the turf. And I like Dandy Harrington's note in his workout report, too. It's a, he had said that, you know, she moves like a turfer in, in her last work. And in the last work as well was outworking Azul Coast, who had won the El Camino um, Real Derby. So there was just lots to like on this one. The other interesting thing, too, is that the ownership group for this horse, this is their first horse that is that they have run at least registered in, in Equibase since 2005. There's really no yeah. owner trainer angle on this one. So that was a little bit of a mystery for me. Um, overall, I felt good about it. The jockey choice was the other big concern that, you know, I saw people bringing up on Twitter quite a bit, you know, why would Baffert put Diaz on this horse and going back again in formulator and looking through that, he 
broke Nadal's uh, maiden. So uh. if he's good enough to ride Nadal, why not this one? So uh, Himiko was, was definitely one of uh, my strong plays, um, but I also liked the three quite a bit since it had already run on debut. Obviously, this race kind of gets switched up when you see the horse, like the number four, Navetti, get scratched out, which ended up being the number three, Affianced, going off at a very slim six to five. Did the price going down warrant a bet? Obviously, having Flavian Pratt, we always know who can heat up at any second like he did on Sunday when he won six of nine mounts. It's it's always nice. Are you a big buyer par guy? Are you kind of just like you just like to see a race by race flow upward? Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm a big buyer par guy. I, I, I know that's one of your strong points and uh-huh. um, certainly something I can learn from you there. Um, from a figure standpoint, I, I often trust our graph a little bit more because it does cover the ground loss aspect of it. Uh-huh. Um, so I will tend to check figures in thoroughgraph and compare them against buyers, uh, not necessarily using one or the other, but really both in relation to each other. But for Affianced, I, yeah, for the price was coming down. And, and to me, I think that was a vote of confidence on the horse. So that made me like the horse a little bit more. Horizontally, going into the race, uh, I was 3-5 um, all the way. So those two horses certainly stuck out to me. And the big thing for Affiance that really stuck out was the replay from the last race. I mean, if you watch that, woke up to Aces, who won that race, was super impressive. I mean, eyeball to eyeball for really four furlongs at a crazy pace, 21 6 and, and still repelled and finished strong. Affiance losing that race wasn't overall a concern to me. I, I think woke up to aces a second time out. McCarthy horse was was certainly primed for a big effort there, and I think it's going to be a really good horse out of that barn. For me, in our contest for the weekend, I was all over the number three, Affianced. I wasn't really playing today. I was more or less just focusing on the tournament being in the semifinals. You said you were 3-5 in horizontals. Did you do anything vertically? Yeah, vertically I did play. Um, there was a couple uh, prices that I did like. So whenever you're playing turf sprints, if you kind of go back to the question of you know some of the angles I like at Santa Anita, even though there, there's a lot of speculation out there on on Miller, um, he is still the king of turf sprints, and he continues to hit at a very high rate. And Scarlet Lips was was one that I was playing underneath in the exotics. Um, and then Vegas Palm. So go back to that angle I had talked about, the uh, older versus three-year-olds. This is the only horse in the race that fit that. So this was a bunch of three-year-olds and one five-year-old um, racing in here. And... On top of that, he also had the highest time form U.S. Late speed, late, late speed figure. So if there was any pace meltdown, this one certainly figured figured late. And the Grand Dam of this one also was second in the Black Eyed Susan and third in the Coaching Club American Oak. So overall, I just felt that the 10 was a good underneath value with the 11. Uh, so those were the, the main ones underneath. I was really against Moon Hall Millie, and I was a little nervous seeing all the action uh, that was being played on this horse as was live on the board. I, I really just looked at this one as people probably seeing that uh, she had beat Woke Up to Aces on, on debut, and Woke Up to Aces ended up beating Affianced. Um, but there's a big difference between a first-time Michael McCarthy horse and a second-time Michael McCarthy horse. That's another one of those SoCal angles. You, you just know Mike doesn't have those horses cranked and ready to go first time out. You know, he builds foundation really well. And second time out, his numbers just jump quite a bit. So, you know, to me, that was one of the angles that had me playing against Moon Hall Millie. Let's see if the number three, Affiance, can get it done for me, or if Ryan can survive with the three or the five right now. Fast beginning for Vegas Palm, Scarlet Lips up close, and here is... Affianced now taking over. Affianced opens up nearly a length. Quiet Secretary moves into second. Predictable Tully. Himiko is fourth, two and a half lengths off the favorite. Then it's Sweet Sunny fifth along the inside. Now taking four, two and a half lengths off the lead. Constantia is next, racing on the outside of Moonshine Millie with Vegas Palm between those two. Three in front of Scarlet Lips. Outside of her M Fast and Delmar Dramas at the back of the field. It's Affianced coming to the quarter pole with a half length lead. Quiet Secretary presses up alongside. Sweet Sunny and Predictable Tully are also in the thick of things. 
Moon Hall, Millie is awaiting some room. They're at the top of the stretch. Affiance, the leader, tackled now by Predictable Tully, three quarters back second. Affiance, handridden, opens it up to two. Vegas Palm on the outside, finishing with some interest. Moon Hall, Millie on the fence. Affianced is too strong, and Affianced wins it by two lengths. Vegas Palm was second. Third went to Moon Hall, Millie, fourth between Predictable Tully and Delmar Drama. And the number three, Affianced, gets it done, paying 460 with a 76 buyer. It's always nice when you're right, isn't it, Ryan? Yeah, nice hit there, and yeah, it was nice to survive that one. Interesting race, though, right? So going back and watching that one a couple of times, I really, I, I was really surprised at how green Himiko was uh, as a baffer uh, coming out for the first time. And really was drifting around in that back stretch. Head was cocked, completely blew the start of that turn, um, lost serious ground and, and momentum there. And and even in the lane, started to drift out again. So seemed like he was avoiding kickback a little bit. Um, but be really curious to see where this one ends up next and to, to see if that greenness ends up becoming a little bit more professional. Would you think a rider change would be in order? I know Diaz obviously said just broke Nadal's maiden, so why not this horse? But maybe someone a little bit more seasoned? Yeah, for sure. I, I think with all the greenness shown here, I would not be surprised to see uh, Drayden up on this one as one of Bob's go-tos or, or Pratt um, next time out. And, and I think that could make a big difference. When we look at the buyers, obviously Affianced only improved one or two points up to a 76 Richard Mandela is not usually the best second time out, 15%, but only with an 82-cent ROI. Were you surprised that not many horses seem to improve a lot from first start to second start? Yeah, I, I really was, um, especially for these three-year-olds. I mean, that, that's when you typically see some pretty big jumps in, in these buyer speed figures. Uh, so that certainly was a surprise, especially for Affianced, because it broke professionally, got right over to the rail and the six was applying a little bit of pressure there, but you know, never eyeballed her. And when the six ended up blowing the turn and the one started to come, the one never eyeballed her either. So never got, never got eyeballed at all in the race. You know, really had that clear lead, um, shortest trip around the track was really expecting a higher buyer there. Um, so came back a little bit slow. When you look at Moonhall Millie, too, the horse that you weren't afraid of, that horse only improved one point as well. But nice pick on the underneath underneath horse, that being Vegas Palm. Yeah, and it's that angle of, of that older horse. And see, listen, the tongue got a great trip, sat perfectly positioned mid-pack, and then picked up ground nicely um, by the turn and just found a perfect hole in the stretch. Um, but sometimes that experience certainly pays off. I will say I was wrong about Moonhall Millie, though. I, even though did not improve much in buyers, and you go back and watch that replay, it really tough beginning. So it was yeah. pinched and steadied, and really, I think, lost about three lengths from the start. And really moved smartly then right over to the rail. I and mean, watch that head-on. You can see this kind of a beeline to the rail after the the ground loss. So it's a really nice job by Rispoli there to, to think quickly on his feet. And... Then just came flying late and found a nice little stretch, uh, hole in the stretch, and and started to come. So that one's one to keep an eye on. It was much better than I thought. Is there any horse that you're going to add to your Equibase, you know, folder of horses to bet back, or was it kind of just like you had seen what you had thought you were going to see? Yeah, I don't think there's any bet back horses. Maybe Moonall Million, depending on where she ends up. I think the trouble was a little bit too obvious um, to to where it's going to drive down that price next time. I don't think we're going to get much value from that. Um, where Himiko, because it's a million-dollar horse, I think it's going to get action and because it's a Baffert uh, on the next race. But because it was such a poor effort, we may see a little value next time out. Uh, but I, I really got to see some improvements um, noted, at least in the workout reports, you know, signs of professionalism. Um, you know, how, did, how does he work out? on the turf if if he ends up getting a turf work so things like that but i wouldn't be surprised if they tried him on the dirt since he was working so well over it sorry she interesting let's move on to race number six it was a state bred the eddie echo 150k for california sired three-year-olds going six furlongs on the dirt we had a filly in here by the number eight big sweep what were your thoughts on her so really interesting placement, right? Because uh -huh. the race six and race eight on this card are, are the same conditions, one for the boys, one for the girls. So the fact that it's the same purse money, 
I was really scratching my head over the placement on this one because, you know, what benefit do they have in, in placing her with the boys here when they pick up the same paycheck um, against the Phillies? So to me, without the monetary benefit, um, I, I was wondering, is this just purely confidence of the trainers or is this really the connections saying that this is the softer spot of the two races? The other thing, too, it may just been the pace scenario. I mean, with Bulletproof 1 and a couple other speedballs going in race 8, and maybe that was what had them shy away. But I found the placement of, of this one to be a little bit of a head-scratcher for me. When you see a horse show the blue time-form fractions and win on the lead, it's, usu- it's usually a negative. But it seemed like, to me, you still were kind of thinking this horse had a decent shot in this race. Yeah, and I included horizontally. Um but I did have two stronger opinions um, that I was using both vertically and on my horizontal tickets. So like you, I, I saw the, the, the time form us blue fractions and, and said, you know, maybe that was just a, a soft, easy going for, for this favorite. And this could be a bad favorite of the, of the bunch. Where, but, where did you end up going with your two better choices? So my top pick was number five, Club Aspen, and I also like number two, Rookie Mistake. Um, Club Aspen had the top thoroughbred fig of the bunch, you know, by two full points, even over the favorite, and had won the King Glorious Stakes even after the jockey had dropped the whip. You know, there was a lot of notes that I had had on, on this horse that I just I had really liked, and you know, figured this one would fit the flow, uh, the projected race flow, uh, pretty well. So this one was my top pick. Dan was strong, three-time stakes winner, um, looked really primed for improvement. Um, for rookie mistake, you know, this one was a bit of a price and had run against open company twice. And that's something that I think people often overlook. When you're running in these state-bred events, you know, taking a look back and seeing who has run against open company, because that's a sign of confidence amongst the trainers and you know, that they can compete at the open level. Now, these Calbred races, though, they come with a nice bonus, so there's no, no blaming the owners for um, entering them here. And it's not necessarily a, a soft spot either because there's some tough Calbreds. Uh, but for rookie mistake, both the dam and the sire side were very versatile from, from turf to dirt. And this one was working with Mirad Khan, uh, another really nice horse that I liked out there. So at a price, I thought this one could fit with Club Aspen, and I'd use Big Sweep as well with it horizontally. What are your thoughts? Because for me, like rookie mistake is a perfect example. It seems like they want to run them on the dirt, but then they always seem to just not randomly throw them on the turf. But it's just interesting that he has four starts on the turf. He's hit the board every time compared to three starts in the dirt, and now he ends up in a state bred dirt race where he's probably in a little bit over his head, maybe. Yeah, well, that's um, that's Redham Racing and their square eddies, man. They're so versatile; mm-hmm. like, they, they can run on, on turf or dirt, and you'll you'll often see that from from the Redham horses and they'll go back and forth quite a bit and they're not afraid to take a shot and that's one of the things i really like about in doug and redham is you'll often see them 10 to 20 to 1 horses and and they'll jump up and and bite you every now and then so um you certainly got to keep an eye out for them for for square eddies i I really like square eddies going less than a mile um so for this one that certainly fit but I wasn't scared off of the turf to dirt angle. I thought that the, the square eddy breeding and versatility is just fine here. And then what about the same turf to dirt with Club Aspen? For me, when you see three st- or four straight state bred races, and then all of a sudden he goes into open competition, but going long on the turf, it just seemed to me like they just were they just trying to find a spot because the book wasn't filling for them, or you think it was something else entirely? Well, that's a great point, and yeah, I think that's one of the areas I would love to improve my handicapping game is to. to really catalog um, the condition book so you can kind of really play out the what other options did this con- did these connections have mm-hmm. um, for this case I, I'm not sure um, valid concern uh, of this one ended up being run long three straight and now shortening up and you know Craig Lewis on those on that shorten up is a, a really positive angle of recent and again formulator has him as a 573 roi so you know that was one that also jumped off the page and anytime lewis ends up getting um with velez it's a dangerous combination as well you know 70 starts with a 421 roi so that was some some further statistics that i liked for me the horse i ended up i also did like club aspen but the horse i ended up on was better trip nick 
for Rispoli and William Delia. I just the horse seemed to like he seems to like to win four for six. Obviously, most of the all those were coming on the synthetic. I did like that blinkers go on, seeing that out of twenty three starts, he has twenty six percent. The ROI isn't great at dollar seventy two. But I just thought that this one might be able to just turn back after showing speed and could be up there a little bit on the pace or just off. And that's the one thing with turnbacks. You always want to make sure that when they're turning back to a sprint, they were up and on the lead. You don't want those horses that were mid-pack because they're probably just going to end up being deep closers. Yeah, this was one I feared. Uh, there was no doubt about that. When you see William Delia bringing a horse down to Santa Anita, it's got to make you say, well, what's going on here, right? So he, he certainly must have had the confidence uh, that this one was primed and ready. Um, out of you know, 1,800 starts for this trainer, has made only three starts at Santa Anita, so home base up there in NorCal. Uh, so definitely one I feared, but was taking a shot against just to keep my ticket uh, affordable. What was your wagering strategy in this race then? Uh, this one, quite honestly, I was just horizontal. I mm-hmm. do not believe I ended up going anything uh, on the exotics uh, at this point. This was starting off the late pick five. Um so wanted to see how I was going to survive to be able to set up, you know, how I was going to play that pick four. You know, for me, I, I would say of my handle, I'd say about 85 to 90 percent of it ends up being horizontal. Uh, that, that's how I play. And it's really the part of the game that I find the most interesting and um, and where I've done really my, most of my work and kind of studying and looking for value and looking for spots to play. Uh, so that's where most of my handle ends up. For me, like I said earlier, playing in the tournament, my pick was better trip. Nick, let's see who wins the sixth here at Santa Anita right now. And they're off. Project leader is out very alertly. Better trip Nick is up close in the early stages and Phantom Boss in the clear. Stir the pot now coming through smartly to challenge for the front. Behind them, rookie mistake is fifth, four lengths off the lead. The Philly big sweep is two lengths behind him. They're followed by Club Aspen and Odache is at the back of the field. Stir the pot passes the half mile pole, dueling with better trip Nick, their heads apart. Phantom Boss is now all the way back to sixth as rookie mistake is clearly in third big sweep is moving up to claim fourth down at the rail project leader is losing ground steadily another two back to club aspen and odache rookie mistake challenges better trip nick at the quarter pole and rookie mistake runs right on by big sweep on the outside is getting into the race they're in the final furlong it's rookie mistake Better trip, Nick, trying to battle back. Big sweep, two behind, and then Club Aspen. Rookie mistake, big sweep, a length back and closing in. Rookie mistake is still loaded, has to fend off. Big sweep, who's coming now? Rookie mistake or big sweep? Big sweep, the Philly beats the boys. And the Philly, number eight, big sweep, gets it done, paying 420 with a buyer of 86. Well, Ryan, I guess she improved off that slow-paced maiden win. Yeah, this is an impressive Philly. I mean, not just a win against the boys, but just completely showed a new dynamic in, in being able to do so from mid-pack. And after using speed um, in, in the front on debut, kept clear of kickback in this one on the outside, probably lost a little bit of ground, but still had plenty. And, and just a really good ride by Pratt, uh, who, who just had to make some quick decisions uh, with rookie mistake drifting, at, drifting about in the lane. Um, and you'll see at one point, if you're looking at the headline, the horses were straight front to back with each other. So, and, and rookie mistake was drifting left to right. So, you know, Pratt really had to make some decisions of which way to go. Do you go in or you go out to, to make that final drive? And he made the right one. Club Aspen decided to run it. Oh, an okay third, I guess, for me. Rookie mistake, obviously, being the better price was really nice. If Unfortunately, he didn't play anything vertically, but what were your thoughts on Club Aspen's ride? Yeah, it was a little bit dull. Um, I, I thought I was certainly expecting better, um, but I would. I still have faith that this one is going to jump up and improve as this year goes on. Um, it, it was nice to see Rookie Mistake had a good race other than the, the drifting in the lane. And when, when I was watching that replay the first time, I was so mad at Mario Gutierrez. His, I was like, how come he is not refusing to go left-handed in the lane? Uh-huh. And the entire lane, it looked like he was just waving the stick up and down. And then when you watch the head-on, you can just see the drift out of the horse. So I think switching left-handed wouldn't have done any good, probably would end up causing um, some bumping there in the stretch. So 
uh, overall, just a horse that's probably still a little bit green and can, needs to continue to mature, um, but has some talent there. There's no doubt about it. I think overall, when you see the type of weekends that Mark Glatt and Flavian Pratt had, Glatt's going to have to be someone that almost turns into Baffert in a way because you have to see like exactly what his horses look like now going into the second week of the meet. Yeah, and Glatt's a turf. Uh, sorry, Glatt's a sprint specialist. Um, so if, if you look at the trends from from Saturday, you know, his three wins were all dirt sprints, and he often does a great job at these five, five and a half furlong sprints as well. Uh, so so that's where you know, he's got his strongest horses. I'll, I'll tend to not play the the mile or above uh, with the Glatt horses unless they are really something special or they stick out statistically for me. Um, yeah, that's another one of those SoCal angles that I look at. Better trip, Nick, just kind of got into a speed duel. He was three wide. He weakened inside the quarter pole. I think the ride was okay. I'd be interested to see where he ends up next time out. He improved still. He went from a 68 to a 75. So he's improving on his dirt form. It'll be interesting to see where he ends up next time as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I'm really curious to see you know, where the Philly ends up. So this is one where now that she's won against the boys, you know, does she end up just going into straight open company outside of the state breads? Um, uh, does she continue to challenge the boys? I'm really curious to see you know, where her next race ends up landing. We'll have to see where the number eight big sweep ends up next. Let's jump into the last race here, Ryan. Race number eight. It was another state bred stake. It was the evening jewel purse of 150k going six furlongs on the dirt as well where did you end up in here yeah so if we thought race six was loaded with speed race eight certainly racing any here because you know this one was just full of speed balls um i i at the beginning when i say i usually start with uh, how the race is going to shape up from a pace standpoint and that is certainly what i did here and i immediately said i'm not playing any of these speed horses and bulletproof one figured to be the likely one on the lead, but you also had four dim lights and six speedy Gigi, who was coming off a quarter horse win, um, that just looked like they were going to go uh, with Bulletproof One. That was their only way to, to be able to win this race. And I just really didn't like that Bulletproof One had, had not won beyond five and a half. And, and even that half furlong jump to six here today with the pace scenario was a, was a big concern. And I just really felt it was a bad favorite. So... I was a complete toss here uh, for Bulletproof One and any of those speed horses that we're going to go with. So for me, it was, how do I find that off the pace horse? And looking at Formulator, it really came down to, to four of them. And that was Smiling Shirley, been studying her, Warren Showtime, or the number 10, uh, Home Home. Um, and where I ended up was um, been studying her. Uh, I, I felt that if you go back to the November race, where I believe five of these horses raced against each other in the Golden State Juveniles, uh, Phillies stakes. And that replay, they been studying her, which is much the best. And from the outside post in that race, and Mike Smith was aboard that day, and she went right to the front and, and just never looked back and just made a, a really good move. Um, actually, early on in that race, almost looked like she was going to lose her footing. Once went sideways and recovered nicely, and, and then just went on. Smiling truly in that race was really impressive too. And she was in the 12 post that day and was six wide, six plus wide probably throughout the race, and, and still closed really nicely for second after a nice middle move. So there was some some evidence there that this one could could improve. Um, but I ended up just using uh, horizontally the been studying her, Warren Showtime, and Home Home. Uh, I, I just didn't like the post for the number one. And quite honestly, I'm just not a big fan of Mike Smith from off-the-pace types. I, I feel like he's overly patient at times and overly cautious, and it, it costs a, a lot of off-the-pace types races. So I, I felt that this one was going to have to work out a trip from the one post, and I just didn't trust, trust Mike to do so. And from a figure standpoint, been studying her was, was just the best horse in the race. Um, so that's where I landed. It's interesting with Ben studying her. You see all the trainer changes going from Hollendorfer to Ward. And I was confused by it for a minute. And then I remembered this was probably back when he was getting, you know, quote unquote, thrown out of, thrown out of Santa Anita. And he had to go try and find another place to ride. 
So that wasn't the biggest deal to me. I was a little bit skeptical when I looked at the last two races and saw, you know, 40 cents in the dollar and going off as a favorite at 7-2 to two and, like, just not being able to show up at all. That was definitely a little bit of a, put a hampering on me to take a, her at another short price. Yeah, the last race certainly was a head-scratcher. I, I, I agree with you. And the only reason um, that I just threw that out was going back to the workouts. So the workout reports on this one, I believe, were B's and had specifically stated that this one is returning sharp and on the last workout had finished the final quarter in 23-1. So from a race flow standpoint, if I'm looking for a horse to be coming late and against all these speed balls, I really love that note as evidence that this one um, could end up fitting that race flow well on top of the already strong figures from the two-year-old season. Um, this one just stood out for me, and uh, that's where I was really taking a shot. Um, I probably ended up should I should have used all of the off the pace horses in this one, but uh, again, just trying to be economical with the ticket. Uh, I felt good about the three that I did use. Home home was a huge price, and this is another one of those you know, square eddies uh, that can run on anything, and it's just some really nice siblings in the breeding there. It's, a, a full to be squared and Rollis and over par and most of their success ha had been on turf. So that was a little bit of a concern. Um, but again, the versatility usually with these square IDs doesn't have me um, coming off of them. The horse I ended up on was the number nine Warren showtime. I just thought, I, I know that the last two races have been on the turf, but I thought maybe it was an upward projection. So maybe not so much the surface change, but just uh, maturation in general to end up, maybe coming out of this race with a little bit of a low to mid 80 possibly where did you end up going from a wagering standpoint yep so horizontally i was uh with the three nine and ten and then with some exotics i, I was strong on the three on top and then underneath uh with the nine and ten well let's see if i can get warren showtime home or if ryan can get his exotics home right now and they're off. Very awkward beginning for Florentine Diamond, who is a distant trailer. Dim Lights is out very quickly and takes the lead. She's in front of Bulletproof 1. And now those two sprint clear by a length and a half to Speedy Gigi in third. Bella Vita is a close-up fourth on the fence, taking third down. Two and a half in front of Home Home outside Warren Showtime. Another three to Smiling Shirley. Warrior's Moon is next. A gap of three to Ben studying her. And it's a distance to Florentine Diamond. Around the far turn they go. It's dim lights along the inside. Bulletproof one. They continue to do battle. Bulletproof one is just in front. Bella Vita is guided off the rail to come after them in third. Speedy Gigi has lost some ground. Home home outside of her. Warren Showtime is just waiting for some room, finding it toward the inside. Now it's a very narrow opening if she can get through with an eighth of a mile to go. Here comes Bella Vita now, and Smiling Shirley has surfaced with a stellar run in the center of the track. It is Bella Vita and Smiling Shirley. Smiling Shirley on the outside, and Bella Vita in a thriller. Smiling Shirley just in front, and Smiling Shirley scores. Bella Vita was second, been studying her third, then Warren Showtime and home home. And the one, Smiling Shirley, gets it done, paying 960 with a buyer of an 82. Well, I guess Mike planned that ride pretty well. Yeah, I got a really good trip, and it really bit me there. So I did not trust Mike to, to get the job done. And I, I think looking back at this race, the, the, the big component that ended up not being uh, how I handicapped it was really with the number two horse. Um, I, I did not see that horse going early and, and trying to be up there with this kind of speed, especially with the type of speed all stacked to the outside. Uh -huh. um, so I really thought the two was going to take off of it. And going back again to workouts, um, I, there was a couple notes of how sharp this one was finishing. So there was just evidence that this one may end up being off the pace or mid-pack, which I thought could make it more difficult for Mike to, to work out a trip. When this two ended up going... And the one just just had uh, a clear path the entire trip and ended up finding angling out at the right time, put her nose in front and was just clear sailing from there. So uh, it ended up being a 
pressure for me. This was a, a pick five that I really felt strong about the last two legs and in retrospect ended up hitting those last two legs. So this was a, another four or five where this ended up being the, the losing leg. Um, and it also hurts when, when you feel like you, you handicapped the, the pace of the race exactly right. And, you know, throwing out those speed horses and knowing that this is just going to be a meltdown up front. Got that part right. Just got the wrong horse. I talk about this a lot with the guys in the daily gallop. Like sometimes you'll, you figure out like, you know, you're on a 19 to one shot, but then the 15 to one shot wins. I've always told myself it's good handicapping because you're on a long shot. You're just on the wrong long shot. Yeah, I agree. And the, the tough part about horizontals is you, know, you don't have, unless it's the first leg of the sequence, you don't have the ability to see the board and mm-hmm. to see what horses may be live there. And that was the case here. When this one started to take money, uh, I, I was certainly concerned. Um, but that being said, I was also still pretty bullish on been studying her and was just kind of surprised at, at how far back Flavian took her. Um, she was really far off the lead here in this race and came with a really nice run late, um, but had to work through a little bit of traffic there in the lane. And at the end of the day, just being so far back early just cost, cost this horse the race. Do you think Smiling Shirley taking money was more of the Mike Smith you know, aura around it, or do you think it was something else? Um, I, I don't know if Mike still has that that power on, on some of these horses. I mean, if you, you talk to most of the the professional uh, horse players out there, and a lot of them are anti Mike Smith, mm-hmm. so I think a lot of the sharp money um, is, is usually against. Uh, but public money, certainly, they see Mike Smith aboard, uh, no problem playing that, especially with, with Mike previously being on, been studying her. I just took that as um, been studying her upgrading to Pratt and Mike finding a spot on Smiling Shirley, but could certainly be wrong in that aspect. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank my special guest, Ryan McCarthy. You can check out Ryan. He does write-ups for the Daily Gallup every Sunday for us for Santa Anita. Where can they talk to you on uh, Twitter there, Ryan? I'm at rmccarthy1. You know, feel free to reach out anytime. Love talking horses. And I love writing for the Gallup, and thanks for everything that you guys are doing, Spence, uh, for the Daily Gallup, and, and really, you know, growing the sport. I, I think getting these articles out there for, for people to see, and it's with the mindset of, of educating the public, and not necessarily saying, yeah, here all my picks are right. It's more about, you know, here's the angles, and here's some of the things that we look at, and, you know, hopefully it, it educates, you know, some of the readers out there of just being better handicappers moving forward. And so, you know, I really appreciate you guys starting that up and giving me the opportunity to write for you guys as, as well as the tournament. Tournament's been fun, and congratulations to you. I know you're going on to, to the finals next week. Go get it. We uh, we have to also talk, obviously, you are also in the final of the NIT version of the tournament, and you're uh, facing the SoCal regular Sean Alvarez. Do we, should we do a little bit of trash talking here on the show, or should we wait for the – Wait to talk in the slack. Well, I'm sure there'll be plenty of slack trash talking, but Sean, this is the battle for SoCal supremacy on the Daily Gallop, and I am not going down without a fight, man. So uh, bring your A game on, on Saturday next week. It's going to be fun. Thanks so much, Ryan. I appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, man. You have a good one. Thanks to all of our great fans for listening to the show and my special guest, Ryan McCarthy. This show has been a production of In the Money Media. In the Money Media's president is Peter Thomas Fornatel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In the Money Media business manager is Drew Codney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time. <music>